Great news, my cruciferous cousins. Plant Strong Foods is hosting a March Madness Meals and Minutes sale. Visit plantstrong.com and save up to 30% on every one of our ready-to-eat chilies and stews. It is the perfect time to stock up on these heat-and-eat tasty meal solutions. Having a stash in your pantry means you're never more than 90 seconds away from a satisfying meal. The sale runs through March 17th while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. Hello, friends. This Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, May 15th to the 17th, 2020, my family and I invite you to gather up your loved ones and join us for a weekend learning lab. This is our first ever live, interactive online event. Join us for the Plant Strong Primer. Our team is usually on the road this time of year, hosting week-long in-person retreats, which have all been postponed for now due to COVID-19. It's our mission to teach as many people as possible the good news about plant-based nutrition. As we slowly emerge from quarantine, it is more important now than ever to teach people how to strengthen themselves from the inside out with the power of plants. During the event, you'll take part in cooking demonstrations led by my sister Jane and my mother Anne. We'll provide you with a grocery list of everything that you'll need during the weekend so you can eat and make our favorite meals alongside Anne and Jane. My dad, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr., will teach you how to prevent and reverse heart disease and will share his groundbreaking research that really helped to launch this global plant-based movement. We also have special guests, Dr. Will B., uh, Mr. Gut Health, who was last week's incredibly engaging podcast guest and the author of the new book, Fiber Fuel. We'll also have my near and dear friend, Adam Sud. His story of transformation is nothing short of jaw-dropping. Please gather your family and join ours this weekend. Partial proceeds will benefit the Esselstyn Foundation, a public charity 501c3 serving free plant-based meals to healthcare workers. And no one will be turned away from attending. Scholarships are available. Simply visit primer.plantstrong.com and we look forward to spending this very important weekend with you. My guest today is one of the great trailblazers in the plant-based space. In fact, he coined the term plant-based over 30 years ago. His name is T. Colin Campbell. Of course, you know him from his book that has sold over 3 million copies, The China Study. You know him from the documentary Forks Over Knives and many of you from his repeat visits to our annual event, Plant Stock. For the past 65 years, he's been a courageous truth seeker and an unapologetic truth teller. On today's episode of the Plant Strong Podcast, we talk about his definition of nutrition. What exactly is protein? Which is better, animal protein or plant-based protein? How much fat should we ideally have in our diet? And we talk about two recently released articles that Colin wrote, which speak to his revolutionary idea 
that the best defense against COVID-19 is what is on the end of your fork. In fact, not only is a whole food plant-based diet the best cautionary measure that we can take, it's also the most responsible to protect the strain on the hospital system, our global environment, and the food supply chain, which, as you know, has been severely compromised, much to the shameful detriment of the workers and the animals. The links to these two articles are in the show notes at plantstrongpodcast.com. But for now, take the next hour and absorb this rich information from my friend and mentor, T. Colin Campbell. T. Colin Campbell, I want to welcome you to the Plant Strong Podcast. Uh, Geez, I think the last time that I saw you, Colin, was on the uh, Holistic Holiday at Sea cruise. Uh, Gosh, I think it was February 27th, right before COVID-19 hit us hard. Yeah, it was a wonder that we weren't on one of those kind of ships. No, it really was. And, and, and this cruise liner that we were on was an Italian cruise liner, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> what a, um, well, what, what a time that was. So I would love to start out by saying, and I want to boomerang around and, and get to this subject, but you recently have written two different articles, both about COVID-19 and how nutrition may be our best defense against yeah. COVID-19, which is kind of a, a novel idea. But if it's okay with you, before we, we kind of tackle that, what I'd like to do is kind of revisit and, and start with some of the kind of nutrition basics a little bit, because right. I think that, that so many people uh, don't know some of the stuff, some of the really uh, revolutionary stuff that you did in, in the China study. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that, if you're okay with that. Sure. First, before I do, T. Colin Campbell. What does the T stand for? Thomas. Thomas. And your son is Thomas. I got got two sons, Thomas. It's kind of weird. And my father's name is Thomas also. Okay. And so, and so tell me, so, but why is the T, why is it, why is it not Colin T. Campbell? Why is it T. Colin? Well, my father's an immigrant and uh, he's from the Campbell clan, as you may know, from Scotland, essentially. And uh, for long centuries, uh, the name Colin was always the first name given to the oldest child in the Campbell clan. And so I was the first child to be born, and my dad wanted me to be named Colin only, but uh, he, he wasn't there when I was born. Yeah. And so when the doctor came around to put the name down. My dad, he said there should be three names, and my mom said, okay, you know, put, uh, put uh, my dad's name first, and that was not exactly what he wanted, so... I stuck with the Colin and kept the T. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I, I love crazy it. crazy idea, but anyhow, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so unique. Um, now, you, you have been kind of one of these trailblazing researchers now for over 65 years. Um, and you've just, you've done some amazing stuff to basically go against the status quo and buck the trends. What, what do you think has given you the courage to go after the truth with such kind of like, with such intensity? Well, there was one very practical reason. Namely, I had uh, academic, academic tenure, uh, which has really become uh, very, I, I've had some very strong feelings about that. I got tenure when I was only in my 30s, fairly young, quite frankly. Uh, so I, I've had tenure all these years. That in turn is guaranteed by uh, 
tenure, academic freedom is guaranteed by tenure, and it's precious, it's precious. Had I not had that kind of uh, academic uh, uh, freedom or tenure, if you will, if I had not ten had tenure, um, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you now. Hmm. And, it's not and important. But, the, but the, the part of it that uh, I get really exercised about is the fact that tenure in American universities has been declining, intentionally so, now for decades. And it's almost at the point now, it almost doesn't exist for a person, let's say, you know, at the senior level, you know, a full professor, tenure, that sort of stuff. There's only, not, in 2011, only 9% of the faculty were senior, senior uh, professors, let's say, full yeah. professors and academic tenure. I was one of the 9%. That was 2011. I bet it's right now, it can't be more than, I don't know what it is, two or 3%. So what that, what that means for a country, Rip, is that it's shutting people down who are expected to be telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And my dad was very particular about that. You tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So it was a combination of my dad's background, his yeah. advice, and the tenure. Wow. Well, it's a shame that, that, is, um, that that's being reduced uh, because we're not going to have as many T. Colin Campbells out there giving us you know, some of this, uh, this amazing information. Unless you um, want to lose your job. Right, right. Shoot your mouth off and get fired. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so in 2005, you came to Austin. You were on the book tour for the China study. Uh, and I can remember going to one of your lectures at Casa de Luz, which was that great little macrobiotic community. And there were about 35 people that came. And, you know, what ensued over the next, you know, six, seven years, eight years with the China study, Forks Over Knives, how you, you literally, Colin, became a plant-based celebrity over the course of, you know, five, six, seven years. This book, if I'm not mistaken, has now sold over 2 million copies. Is that correct? It's actually now over 3 million. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. That's crazy. Actually, it's been translated now into 50 foreign languages, which I think is a that is that is so so has this exceeded all of your wild expectations well your dad you know he and our partners as you know <laughs> yeah and he did he, he he took he was on his own course uh you know like i am and uh it's really interesting i mean i i've always been fascinated with our relationship not on, on a personal level but on a professional level you know he's he's looking at this whole question you know from a cl clinical point of view obviously and uh, I'm from a scientific point of view. Of course, it's a hand and glove kind of situation. So can I, I want to start by asking you this very, very simple question. And I don't know what your answer is going to be. So I'm looking forward to it. And that is, what is your definition of nutrition? Pretty straightforward. I, I thought a lot about that. Uh, those of us in this particular area of science, we argue over a great deal. We argue a great deal about that kind of thing. And, and so forth. But at a simplest form, I say it's the biological expression of food. In other words, we eat food, obviously. We eat food, and uh, thereafter, the food is digested, metabolized, etc., etc. And that is what I call expression. It's the expression of the food through digestion and metabolism. Okay. And so the biological expression of, of food. food. Yeah. And, and, then, and then, obviously, depending upon what kind of food you're eating, 
it's going to express itself in our in our organisms either in a healthy way or a harmful way correct right right yeah okay absolutely. yep um so what would be your ideal prescription for maximum optimal health well you know what yeah prescription yeah that's that's an okay word um, I thought a lot about that too. We, we think of guidelines, recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to think of it as a goal. Now, I can tell you why. Uh, the, the goal is to go you know, the whole way, and that means whole foods, plant-based. Pretty simple, pretty simple. And that covers, when you say whole, and I would suggest, that covers uh, the idea of not adding oil. For example, that your dad likes to talk a lot about, which I support. But in any case, it, 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 we don't, we don't need to add the fractions of, of, of uh, plants like oil and sugar and you know stuff like that. So I, I say the goal is whole food, plant-based. Now, the reason I say the goal, uh, Rip, I wanna, I'd like to add this comment. And that is that when people ask me, you know, I have to go 100%, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You, you've heard a lot about that. It, had, it has to be absolutely, I will say, yeah, that's the goal. If you wanna go part way, that's your choice. I'm, I'm not here to dictate what one should do. Uh, and also, I can't say that uh, that every single person, you know, that, that people who don't quite go quite 100 percent, they can get a lot of benefit. The science does not support the idea of 100 percent is absolutely essential for everyone on the one hand. On the other hand, why not do it? Because when you go to 100 percent, then your bodies adjust. Your yeah. food tastes great. And why would you tease yourself with like the smokers with an extra cigarette or two? just because you can get away with it. I mean, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, yeah. But to say you're saying gold, then I don't have to defend it, you know, in terms of science for every single person. Yeah, so whole food, plant-based, that's the, uh, that would be your prescription, obviously. Uh, yeah. and, your, and your research going back to, you know, the, going to China, going back, what, uh, 1970s, absolutely, um, uh is indicative of that yeah that's right actually as you know i i started out my graduate studies yes uh, pursuing a, an idea that was exactly opposite and so my uh the so-called uh, my more professional work started in the 1960s with the nih grant support yeah so it goes back to then yeah yeah okay uh and I, th I think that one of the things that you're best known for is protein. And so I, I'd love for you to help us understand what, what is protein? Well, protein is a, a long string of pearls, or like you said, sometimes a long string of uh, amino acids, of which there are about you know, 20 to 22, somewhere in that neighborhood. And they can come in all kinds of combinations. You know, that's the order when which you find them. It's really an infinite number of possibilities. So there is a certain arrangement in, in uh, the amino acids, uh, you know, that uh, makes for so-called high quality protein and those that don't. Uh, so uh, we have these long strings of uh, all wrapped around in a globule like that, amazing molecule when you have a, just a whole protein molecule. And uh, it's just, it just made up that string of uh, pearls, the best way to visualize a string of amino acids, of which there are 20, 22 different kinds. Right, right. Um, and you, you mentioned the word, you know, quality protein. So 
in, in the China study, you talk about how the most high quality uh, protein that has the greatest efficiency, I think is most readily absorbed, if I'm not mistaken, is animal protein, correct? Right. I'm but right. it, com it, it yeah. comes with an asterisk next to it, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, uh, I'm glad you I took, took me up on that. And I said the quality thing intentionally. Uh, you know, the, we have, as a society, whether in science or not in science, we tend to think that animal protein is superior, you know, higher quality, if you will, that, that kind of word, higher quality. Uh, and, but in a technical sense, uh, there's, a, a, there's a formula that's been used in nutritional science for many years, back to all the way to the 1920s, that actually determines quality of protein. Mm -hmm. And if one looks at that formula, you got a numerator and a denominator. It's a percent of total protein being uh, consumed that is retained by the body. Okay, the higher the percent that's retained by the body for presumably for good use, that's so-called biological value or high protein. That's that's called quality. What well, turns out the percent retained, we make the presumption that the percent retained is doing all good stuff. Right. When in reality, it's not. It's really not, but the, that concept has stuck around from science as well as in the public for a long time. You know, animal protein is higher quality. You know, because it, 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 we, you know, when what we don't consider in that is incidentally we don't consider the effects of that protein. You know, in that protein, where it's very high amount retained, if it's the wrong kind, it can generate cancer production. It can, you know, support heart disease development. It can, it can do all kinds of things. Right. So we don't put that in the calculation. And somehow that old formula has been hanging around forever. Nobody really challenges it. Right, right. So, so a high quality protein from animal products doesn't equate to greater health. If anything, it means less health, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Right, right. And it also... Would you, is it accurate to say that that uh, animal protein, this high quality uh, high quality protein, jacks up your levels of IGF one, insulin-like growth factor number one? Right, absolutely, and that's that's good for growing kids. You don't want to grow them you know, too fast. There, there's some risks there, but nonetheless, that that same pro, uh, hormone, if you will, uh, also helps cancer cells to grow too. Right. Not, not a very good idea. No, not, not at all. No. Yeah, there, there, was a, there was a movie back in the 80s called uh, Blade Runner, and, and there's a scene in there where Rucker Hauer, who plays one of these um, kind of robots, uh, says the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And I feel that's kind of a similar analogy here with, that with, is, yeah. with animal protein. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's almost like, like Mother Nature knew exactly what she was doing with, with plants and making making, you know, plant protein, uh, kind of like the Goldilocks version of protein. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, nature, nature was a pretty important force. And, uh, Pre pretty darn important force. Yeah, that's right. It decides what it wants to do on its terms. Yes. Um, so if you had to come up with an ideal percentage of protein, uh, that you would say people should be getting in their in their diets? Would it be five percent, ten percent, fifteen percent? What is it? What is your study showing you? Well, the the numbers on that, by the way, it go back some many years. 
is supported by pretty decent science, namely the minimum amount we need, that's the amount that's required in order to, to uh, replace or replenish the nitrogen we lose. So the minimum amount we need for that purpose, called balance experiments, is around 5%, 4 to 5% of total protein. And, and when that's done experimentally, you do it on a group of people, but just to ensure that everybody gets enough, it was increased by two standard deviations in the olden days, maybe adjusted a little more, and then you come up with a so-called recommended dietary allowance, or RDA. That recommended dietary allowance turns out to be, in terms of percent of total calories, it turns out to be around 9%, 8 9%. Hmm. And that, mind you, in a theoretical sense, that two standard deviation elevation of the minimum requirement means that, theoretically, 98% of the population are going to meet their minimum needs. Okay, let's say all, more or less. I mean, I'm just giving you the literal translation of that. So virtually everyone's getting enough protein when they are at 8 9 10%, even if it comes all from plants. In fact, you know, potatoes don't have much protein, but even if you were to theoretically eat just potatoes only, uh, around 8 9% or so, you, you still be getting enough protein. So plants have all the protein we need, and we don't eat it quite that way. We eat you know, whole foods. And the level of protein from plants may get as high as 15, 16, 17, 18% or so, and there's no problem. Hmm. But if it comes in the form of animals, different story. Right, in the form of animals and that high quality That's protein, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. And then it kind of, uh, it, it jacks you up and it messes with you. Yeah. So what, and what percent protein would you say most Americans are getting and, and how much of that is coming from animals? Do you have any idea? Yeah, right. There's a, a, a government agency that keeps track of, you know, nutrient composition of foods and estimates how much we're consuming. And that's around from 11% for the 95% of the population. It's around from 11% up to about 22%. Wow. You're sure, you know, some of the paleo people can get higher, obviously. But you're, we're talking about 11 to 22% in that range, more or less. Uh, and the average is around 17.5%, even approaches 18%. And of that, of that, about 75% of that is coming from animal foods. Well, it doesn't surprise me because it seems to me like most Americans are not eating whole plant-based foods. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah. And you look at the, you know, what the USDA council puts out, and I think it's maybe, maybe what, 6 7% of their, of their uh, daily uh, caloric consumption is coming from whole plant-based foods. Something like that, yeah. I mean, about, you're right. I mean, that's... Yeah, not, not maybe much. A little, maybe a little more on average, but still, it's very low. Yeah. And what are you? Are you 100%? I don't know. You know something. I, I don't go in for all these kind of numbers all that much. I, I, yeah. I look at them in terms of trying to figure things out. But yeah. as far as my, for myself, you know, I've never one time in my life sat down and calculated how much of the different nutrients I consume. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't go for that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, I, frankly, I never have either. I mean, one time I figured out how much protein I consumed in a day by, you know, via grams, just because so many people ask me. Right. And, and I realized that it was well over, you know, 70, 80 grams a day, not even thinking about it. That's right. Yeah. Um, what about, what about fat? Uh, what, what would you say, is there an ideal amount of fat that we consume? I know that you don't count these things, especially when you're eating a whole food plant-based diet. Yeah. 
But for comparison purposes, I know in the China study, you kind of uh, assumed, or you sh I shouldn't say assume, you figured out that the average rural Chinese um, person is eating about 15% of their calories from fat and Americans right. are like 37%. Right. I mean, and so uh, how does that affect health uh, in your opinion? Well, you had to go back to some theoretical, not really theoretical, experimental data that some years ago, uh, we do have a need. We, we have a, a, there's a certain a couple of essential fatty acids we need to consume. You know, the omega-3 or omega-6, basically, the combination. In any case, uh, that's somewhere around 6%, 7%, maybe. Uh, that's all what we need. And so I kind of leave the, the discussion there you know, uh, on one hand, on the other hand, uh, you know, as far as the best diet is concerned, we get plenty of, of fat from plant foods. You know, if you look at international level, a lot of it comes from animal foods. But unfortunately, uh, I, I would say that uh, diets containing, well, theoretically, eight, nine percent fat is enough, is enough. Uh, of course, we go higher than that, as we know, we're far, far higher. And uh, a lot of it comes from animal foods, but actually the majority of that now, as you know well, uh, is coming from added oils. Mm. Mm -hmm. Added oils. And there, were, there we get into a problem because most of those oils from corn, stuff like that, uh, they're omega-6. Right. In a new discussion, omega-6 is pro-inflammatory. And their counterpart is omega-3s, okay? So we need it. nature had it that we should keep a balance of omega six to omega three. It should be around two to one, three to one, maybe four to one, something like that in a whole food plant based diet. Yeah, but in fact, we're we're like twenty times that. So we're consuming really a, a very pro inflammatory diet, mm -hmm. largely comprised of added oils. Ezra, your your dad and I are on the same page on that one there. You know, no, no, no oil, no oil. Yes, because most of it's omega six. Now I have to say I don't necessarily subscribe to that same formula for whole foods. Right. I'm talking about plant foods that have uh, you know much more oil, like nuts, avocados, and stuff like that. Um, that's a whole food from my point of view, and uh, in reality, and I think the data really support this, that those kinds of whole foods with that oil in it. You know, it's, it's not, it's a different ball game. It, it's perfectly okay. You don't overdo it. Yeah. You, know, you don't overdo it with any, any kind of food. Yeah. But there's, so there's a real distinction here between added oils on one hand. No, no. That's not whole food, mind you. Uh, that's a no, no. On the other hand, you know, the, the plants that do have some oil in them, they're oftentimes good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. The, um, <clears throat> One of the things that I, I, I failed to ask you about here when we were talking about protein, and um, I, I think it's probably what you're best known for within the, the whole protein um, universe <clears throat> is casein, and which represents the, the, the majority of the protein in, in, in dairy products, right? Right, yeah. And, and is it fair to say that, that you consider casein the number one carcinogen in the american diet yes i'm glad you asked that question i know that's startling and it's shocking for those even people in science and i have to go back in this case to the official bioassay method 
that is used by the government has been used for now 60 years. It's called a, a bioassay method for testing carcinogens, you know, which chemicals cause cancer, which don't. That's a laboratory animal study is really what it is. And what they do in that kind of study is they'll have a control group with a suspect chemical, whatever it is, uh, that, that they have no, you know, in the control, there's no, none of that suspect chemical. Then they usually have another two or three groups that have different levels of that chemical, usually fed at like a hundred to a thousand times as high as what we otherwise get, right? So all the information we get on so-called environmental carcinogens is coming from that bioassay. Chemicals fed at extraordinary levels, really high levels, and then the scientists have to go back and sort of extrapolate that if there's an effect, they have to extrapolate that, that slope of the line, let's say back to the lower levels that you might be consuming. By that time, you lost all contact with reality <laughs> at that point. Now, in that system, the reason I tell you those details, because in that system, yeah. if I put casein in there, protein in there, it causes cancer, not at these, you know, two or three orders of magnitude higher. It causes cancer at levels we're going to be consuming. You know, going from, let's say, 10% total protein or animal protein on up, that's when you start seeing a really nice sharp line starting to rise. It's amazing. And so the animal protein, without a doubt, casing, without a doubt, uh, there is, I, I've actually, there's three labs, in the, three labs in the world who actually work on this, two in the United States, one in the United Nations. I've spoken to all three. I've explained to them exactly my reasoning. You guys are keep on coming up with this information about these chemicals causing cancer, and that's a big deal. But you're leaving out the most important thing of all. Right. It makes the rest, the rest of your stuff, you know, really questionable, <laughs> to say it mildly. Well, but, but it really sh shouldn't be that surprising when you think about it, because what, a, what is casein? It's a, it's a growth accelerator, right, that's put there by the mother cow. Right, exactly. And, and I think as you so eloquently point out, I mean, it, this was, it was never meant for, for, you know, for human beings. And no. so now we gobble it up and it's probably such a high quality protein, right? Close to hundred percent of it's used and retained. Wow. 95% or something like that is really high. So, okay. Just for comparison purposes, if, if casein is 95 to hundred percent of it is, is used, what would it be like chicken breast or something like that? Do you have any idea? Yeah, sure. It's, it's similar. I mean, the animal foods in general are around, I think the lowest is maybe 87, 88% uh -huh. up to, you know, 95 to 100, something like that. Uh, plant foods in contrast. Yeah. A little bit down the scale. They're not, they're not at that level. And, and from my point of view, without getting too teleological, yeah. nature had it that way. Uh, we, we get, we absorb maybe, uh, you know, 70%, even right. less for some. So, yeah. Right. So in this case, getting a C minus is the best score you can get when it comes right. to protein. <laughs> right. You know, the ideal protein is human flesh. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I've heard you say that before, but uh, why is that? It well, you know, you know, see, see we're, we consume protein to replace our own needs, you know, for protein. Our break, protein is always breaking down and replenishing itself and stuff like that. And so if we want to replenish everything we get in the most efficient manner, well, why wouldn't we? We, we would consume the flesh that we're replacing. Exactly. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. so there you have it. Uh, that is, <laughs> so, 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 uh, all right. Well, if, if we're on a desert island and we need, uh, we, you know, we got to eat each other, we'll, we'll be in good shape. You know, that's uh, funny, but yeah, if I can a second. Yeah, yeah. In the Philippines, where a lot of my stuff started, you know, with working with uh, kids and stuff, you know, starving kids and trying to make sure they got enough protein. Uh, there was, in fact, at that time, a tribe in the nearby mountains were carnivores. They did eat people. Oh, cannibals. Yes, and I, I saw one of those guys. When I'm there thinking about protein and stuff like this, this guy was almost like a homeless guy sitting on it. And I was told everybody, he was, he was, uh, he was a carnivore. He might have oh thought that I was maybe a good meal. I don't know. Well, <laughs> no. Well, so well, you just brought that up, and I want to transition to something. So you said carnivore. So you, you know all about Atkins. You know about South Beach. You know about paleo, keto. And the, the new kid on the block, right, because this, this never seems to want to go away, is it's called, they're calling it the carnivore diet, where all you eat is meat. Right, right. I mean, what is your opinion of these, these diets, and why won't they go away? And, and how is it that, that the science hasn't snuffed these guys out long ago? Well, Atkins, for one, was proud of the fact he never published a, seven, a single scientific paper. He was proud of that. He was proud of that. His wife even said that. I read she was proud of the fact he was proud of that. Anyhow, he published that book in 1973. And then, and then he got kind of put in the background for a while by John McDougall and some other Pritikin until about 1990. And then he came back with a new one. Uh, and so his reaction at that time, I'm really convinced, was two things. One is that he was reacting to the general idea beginning to rise at that time that maybe we should shift our diet a bit more toward vegetables. I know the politicians and the industry didn't like that. He came along because that's what he knew the public wanted to hear. As John Madugo has often said, people like to hear good things about their bad habits. Yeah. So Atkins came along and he, he did that, but he had one more thing in mind. And I've learned this from two of my students who attended my class at Cornell in those, those years, those early years, who went to his clinic. He had a clinic in New York City. And he had, uh, so it was said, so I was told, he had 30 chairs with people sitting in the chairs with uh, drip, you know, drip uh, things in their, in their vein. Yeah. And they were being told, here's how much you need of this vitamin, that vitamin, and some other vitamin. So here they're eating the wrong food, and then supposedly having vitamin deficiencies, and then he's replenishing that with that's the sale of a bunch of vitamin supplements. That is the absolute antithesis to everything that you believe in. Absolutely, 100%. Wild Earth was founded by a dedicated team of dog lovers because they were fed up with the dog food industry. It wasn't doing right by the animals that we love and the planet that we share them with. At its core, there's an unhealthy meat dependency in pet food. Most of the time, meat in your pet food means bad ingredients, bad practices, and bad health, which is bad news for pets, pet parents, and the planet. So Wild Earth made a new kind of dog food, a better one, with a plant-based recipe that's simply made better. This means high quality, cruelty-free ingredients, sustainable sourcing that's better for the planet, and a vet-developed recipe that's both healthy and better for pets. Try a bag today 
at wildearth.com and use the code PLANTSTRONG to save 40% off your first order. I want to share your, this is one of your principles in the China study. And it's, and it's principle, it may be principle number one, and it is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, can you just talk about that for a sec? The symphony? Uh, sure. Yeah. Of yeah nutrition. That, that, obviously, that's not mine. I've got to give credit, so, so I understand, to Aristotle, who lived you know, a couple of millennia ago. But that concept has been expressed from time to time. The whole is greater than some of its parts. Um, and in various kinds of industries, as well as other endeavors we have in life. But it really, it really fits this uh, nutrition idea really well. Um, and um, so I call that, it was written in the book, as you know, in, in uh, 2013, I think it came out, called Whole. Right. I put a W in front of, the, you know, that, that's akin to holism. And holism in science has never been very well accepted. It's a hot point. It's a flashpoint. Because I always spelled it H-O-L-I-S-M. You know, obviously related to uh, religious persuasion. Yeah. And so science and religion didn't all didn't uh, match up that well. So scientists always were reticent to even use that word holism with an H. So when I came along, I was thinking about it when I was writing that book. I really believed in the concept of holism for various and sundry reasons. And I looked in the dictionary to look and see if the W spelling was correct. I couldn't find it even on the Oxford Dictionary or the Webster Dictionary. So I said, shoot, I'm going to, I'm going to put the W in there and put a couple of parentheses around it. And that's, that's my words, spelled with a W. And no, now coming back to the, the, the evidence you know, for that, uh, which got me there to, to begin with, um, it's, it's abundantly clear to me, even more now than ever, that when we eat food, we're eating you know, countless nutrients and nutrient-like substances. You could say 100,000, 500, whatever the number is, there's so many different kinds of chemicals, and uh, they're, they're not operating independently. That's a really important point. And yeah. there's various ways I can talk about that, but they're not operating independently. When we consume them, they, they're, they're work, they work together in an integrated fashion for the most part. And uh, in fact, it's so beautiful the way when you, especially looking inside the cell where I felt like I, felt like I spent much of my life. You know, inside the cell is a, is a complex thing it's like a universe. You can't see it with a negative eye, but there it is. It's got all these parts. And in there, when you start thinking about all these reactions and all these things going on in there, uh, there's no way for the human mind to comprehend, no way, to be able to describe exactly what's going on. And, and whatever might be observed, let's say, in a, in a moment in time, it's going to change in the next nanosecond. Mm. So it's a dynamic system beyond our comprehension. And all that's happening together. And when we start thinking of it in that context, mm. that takes us away from what we have become used to, and that's thinking about individual nutrients and what they do. It, it, I mean, you can suddenly get in a whole new world of thinking, which for me enables me to, to explain the kind of things I see and helps me to explain the, the odd things that we see. Yeah. You know, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, no, it is. It's a beautiful symphony. And the way you started this story by saying, talking about Atkins and, you know, seeing, seeing these people that are, you know, in their chairs, getting these IV drips of different, uh, different nutrients that they're deficient in is, <laughs> that, that is, that is, that is sad. 
Very it sad. Is sad. Yeah. Yeah. The, another one of your, your, your principles that I want to read because uh, people, some, for some reason or, or, or other, we're just programmed to think that when you start eating a, a whole food plant-based diet, or I should say a plant-based diet, you're going to be somehow deficient in something, whether it's protein, whether it's fat, whether it's you know, different vitamins, minerals, where you say there are virtually no nutrients in animal-based foods that are not better provided by plants. I mean, Absolutely. hooray, hooray. I still say the same thing. <laughs> right. You haven't changed. You haven't budged an, an inch, no. have you? No. I love it. Let me, let me ask you this, because so many people that I run into, and I'm sure you do as well, say that they've got bad genes, right? And they got heart disease or hypertension, or uh, they came down with cancer because of a bad gene. In the China study, uh, you talk about da, these guys, Richard Dahl and, and Richard Pito from the UK that presented to Congress in 1981, their findings showing that only two to 3% of cancers are caused, I think, from nutrition, if that's fair. Or from genes. From, oh yeah, I'm sorry, that's what I meant. From, yeah. from, from, from genes, exactly right. Uh, w would you say that that is accurate? Yes, I would. That two to 3% is, it was kind of a guesstimate on their part, uh, just to play it safe. Uh, and, and there may be, you know, there's a couple of cancers that are, are genetically uh, based and there's not much you could do about it, I think. But nonetheless, two or three percent, yeah, probably a pretty good figure. So that means that ni almost 90, 96, 97% of cancers out there are lifestyle and environmentally created. Right. I have a new way of saying it. Not, it's not so new, but uh, yeah. just to make the, the distinction. Um, you know, the cancer industry, by the way, likes to describe, and you'll find this on their website, whether it's ACE, American Cancer Society or NCI or whatever, you'll find it right on their website. Cancer is a genetic disease, okay? That's what they say. I say, no, it's a nutritional disease. The genes are there to start the business like they start every, everything else. They're there, that's the basis. But whether or not they do damage or don't do damage is basically controlled by nutrition. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's really what it comes down to. So with that thought in mind, going back to what you first asked, you know, like two or 3% being just genes or genes only. Uh, even for me, I, I, I don't, I think there's some fancy rare, rare cancer. I can't remember the name of it now at the moment that when people have that, most people do get that cancer, but it's really rare. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just, it's remarkable to me to think about the percentage of people that are coming down with cancer in, in America every year. And I think if I'm not mistaken, the numbers are something like 50% of men and women will come down with a cancer in their lifetime. And to think that the vast majority of these are, are caused because they are unfortunately nutritionally illiterate and they're not following what you would prescribe, which is a whole food plant-based diet. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to me, it, 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 you know, one of my, you have so many amazing quotes in, in Forks Over Knives, but to me, the one is where you're standing in front of the Capitol, I believe it is. And you say, do you realize that we could cut our healthcare costs by 80%, literally almost like that, if we could just get people to 
understand nutrition and then apply these principles of nutrition. 80%. You still hold true to that? Yeah. And, and by the way, since that time, I mean, I, I, I draw uh, some of this from your dad's uh, work, quite frankly. You know, that study he published in 2012? Yep. Where you had 100 and he started out with, I guess, 198 or something like that. He was able to phone and talk to. And 177 said they were still following his advice, okay? Yeah. Uh, and only one of the 177, you know, had an event, a serious event like that. Well, do the count, do the math. I mean, that's easy math. That at least 90%, it seems like to me, just to throw a number out there, of people with heart disease can, in fact, keep it under control, reverse it, you know, for all practical purposes. They don't see evidence of it. I don't know. I, I mean, if, if you combine that, that information there together with the correlation studies, you know, yep. where at the very bottom, it suggests that even small consumption of animal food raises the risk for certain cancers. That, so I, I, th I feel very, uh, very happy with uh, that estimate of the 80% figure. Yeah. You know, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Maybe it's higher. Who knows? <laughs> I think you're right. I think, I think it probably would be higher. Um, and is it fair to say that whether it is heart disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, uh, d some form of dementia, Alzheimer's, that, that a whole food plant-based diet basically helps prevent all those. Not, there isn't one diet for one disease. Well, that's what we told in the China studies, you, you probably know. I mean, we, I just went through and picked out a half a dozen different diseases for which I could find some evidence, let's say. Yeah. Uh, and that was in 2005, or wrote at the time, that suggested that all those diseases should respond in a somewhat similar way. Maybe not the same extent, but at least respond. And uh, then, so we put the book out. And I actually did say at that time, I didn't want to be too dogmatic about this darn thing. And so I just sort of said, if you can find an error that, uh, you don't need to listen to all my, all my stuff. Just try it. Yeah. And I, I did that part because your dad, because he had done that. Uh, of course, uh, John McDougall had, you know, done his thing. Uh, Dean Orish had done their things. I, I knew all the three of them and some others. And so I, I just, uh, I felt pretty comfortable, you know, even, even if I didn't have the data from a strictly scientific point of view, yeah. th this is, this is likely to be true. Yeah. Since then, well, you, you know, I'm sure you know this. Since then, you know, talking around, give the presentation we do, the number of people who've come up to me, often with tears and emotionally, they don't necessarily want to talk about it in front of other people. Yeah. They tell these amazing stories. You know, I mean, yeah, you could say it's anecdotal and not necessarily published, but uh, it's such a broad effect. Yeah. It's such a broad effect. Yeah. No, the, the proof is in the... Um... The plant pudding there for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Diabetes, heart disease, obesity, you know, all, almost all of the chronic Western diseases just basically whew, wiped out. Yeah. And, uh, and as you talk about in the China study, it, it's not, I mean, this, this way of eating a whole food plant-based diet, it, it not only prevents these diseases from happening, but also if you have them, you can also basically halt them or reverse them. Yeah, I like the word treat. Treat, I mean, good. Your, your, your dad used a reversal. Reversal. 
Yeah. yeah. Owners did that too. I can't remember. But in any case, that word reversal is a good word. It's kind of a safe word. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, going to take, I'm going to take a leap forward and, and use the word that's used in the medical profession just to call to their attention. Hey, you guys are using all those drugs to treat people. We got a better formula. <laughs> we can treat with nutrition. I, I, I like that a lot. So, yeah. So uh, let's come back to where I, I started this whole conversation, which is you've written two articles in the last couple of weeks, both regarding how to flatten the curve with COVID-19 and how you believe that the, the ticket here, the, 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 the weapon, it is not remdesivir, it's not hydrochloroquine, you know, it's, it's not that. It is something as simple as what? It's simple as this question we've just been talking about for you know, degenerative diseases. It's incidentally, uh, we, all, we know this, uh, I know it certainly from the scientific community, there's been a great reluctance to talk about the effect of this whole food based diet, let's say on flu, you know, viral diseases. It's kind of been missing the boat. Yep. And we don't have, you know, really, any really substantially evidence to show that that's, that's true. And so there's been, uh, there's been in our minds, I guess you could say, almost subconsciously, oh, this doesn't apply to viral diseases kind of thing. Well, you can't, you have to listen to somebody saying that because you don't have any evidence to prove otherwise. When, when in fact, it turns out that we collected data in China, in our China study, now over 30 years ago, on four different viruses, really significant viruses, one of which we studied in some great de detail, actually, and published some that, air, that information. That's the hepatitis B virus, yeah. which causes liver cancer. And uh, all the viruses have one, you know, viruses, all they, they, they bury a great deal in the kind of symptoms they produce all over the map. You know, they cause all kinds of mischief and problems and stuff like that when I mean, the real symptoms, okay? But they also have something in common that people tend to forget about. And the commonality is the mere fact, the idea, that these viruses, they come in, they can't re reproduce themselves. They come into our bodies. They use our equipment in our cells to actually be, to reproduce. They may be partial DNA, partial RNA, whatever. They, so they're, they're using our normal cells and to reproduce, reproduce themselves. That causes a really a mess, you know, in cases and really serious problems. Hmm. Uh, so the question then is that all the viruses are, they, they basically provoke the body to defend itself. What, what, how do they do that? Well, one of the principal ways, not the only way, but one of the principal ways is to form antibodies. I mean, that's pretty consistent for all viruses, basically and other you know, bacteria and so forth and so on. And so what we measured in China was the production of antibodies to the hepatitis B virus. And then we had an opportunity and we also looked for the antigen. That's, that's the virus that's not yet, you know, the nascent virus. That's the, yep. you know, the dangerous stuff. So we had an opportunity to investigate or collect information on the antibodies and antigens amongst a total of what turns out to be 8,900 people located in 170 villages across uh, China and Taiwan. And I had those data from years ago, and I just, with this all this occasion now, I went back and got some of it because we actually did focus on it at the time and took that information back to my lab and studied that in some detail uh, in terms of what it actually does and how nutrition relates to it. 
And the combination of the two, the combination of the effect of the viruses during the infectivity period, you know, in the formation of the immunity, that's one thing. And the other is the, the effect of the diet on the expression of that virus once it's absorbed. Mm. In other words, how does that translate itself into, in this case, liver cancer or something else? So there's two parts of that story. The virus comes in, it can be deactivated, that's one way. The other way is it can do its dirty work. So what, what we found, and it's really impressive, the, the people consuming more vegetables and plants, fiber, thymus, whatever you want to that was highly significantly correlated with the production of antibodies. Whereas in contrast, the, the, uh, the production of liver cancer in that case, which is the effect of the hepatitis, yep. that is increased by animal-based foods, and that's what we took back to the lab. And we found out that, in fact, when you transfect a mouse, with the virus that's converted its genes to the viral gene and forms liver cancer, you can do that. It turns out that uh, what, uh, what has a major effect on that, just like an environmental chemical idea, the animal protein promotes it. And so we, had, we have two kinds of data now that are mutually supportive. Mm. And, 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 and in the, uh, the uh, stuff in the, in the field, it's, it's equivalent to statistical significance of POO1. You know, one chance at a thousand is wrong. Wow. I mean, I'm not talking about just a casual observation. I'm not, I'm talking about this relationship being explored in different ways. And then, you know, having statistical significance to go with it. Now, coming back to the idea that there are some general common properties. I, I'm really, I have to be careful how to say this because it's a very sensitive topic these days. Yep. But I'm basically, I'm saying the evidence we have for some other reasons too, I won't go into here. The evidence we have uh, really is the way to go for this business. Right, right. Well, it's very, very <clears throat> different what, what's presently being offered. No, well, very much so. Um, and you look at what, is it 90, 97% of the people that have perished from COVID-19 uh, have had some sort of an underlying health health yeah, condition, right. some exactly. comorbidities right. going right. on, in large part probably because um, they've yeah. been been eating the standard American diet, right? And, right. and they they don't they they haven't as we talked about in the very beginning, they uh, their their nutrition <laughs> that they've been feeding themselves has been basically feeding disease and not health, and uh, and then they get hit with this, this, this uh, COVID-19 and, uh, and they just can't stand up to it, right? That's right. I mean, most of those people who are dying are compromised nutritionally, like you just yeah. said. Yeah. So it's yeah. A, and it's the same formula for both uh, those, those comorbidities as it is for the virus itself, according <laughs> yeah. to the evidence we have. Yeah. So, it was, so, so really, the, the best way to defend yourself, not only from chronic Western disease, but also this pandemic, potential pandemics that are coming down the pike, is we gotta, we gotta as, a, as a nation, we should collectively be pivoting to a whole food plant-based diet. It's amazing what it will do, you know, uh, as you said in Forks Over Knives, right? 80% of our $3.9 trillion health care bill would probably potentially go away, right? In a matter of years. Uh, we wouldn't be as 
exposed, exposed to COVID-19 and, uh, and think of all the good we'd be doing for the planet. Right, exactly. It's, it, it, it truly, it seems like it's the silver bullet. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't call it a silver bullet. That's the magic or magic bullet. You know, it's one thing at a time. But, you know, it, yeah. it is, uh, it's like a, what, what should you call it? An earthquake. I, I don't know. It's not, that's not a good one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a seismic revolution. Seismic right? revolution. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. That's one my father always likes to use. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good one. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this, Colin. What's going on with Nelson and Thomas and Leanne? I know these are all some of your children that have filed in your footsteps and are just like I have with my father and are doing really, you know, good work in the uh, in the field of the plant based movement. Well. Uh, Tom is, uh, he's going on, he was an actor by trade or profession, but he went and got his MD. Now he's a, uh, got a n- nice position, position at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And uh, he just came out with a paper, by the way, he's doing some research and just going down this road. He just came out with a paper, it's a case control study on a man, 69 years old, who was overweight, hypertensive, uh, you know, diabetes. Uh, he was headed for dialysis, actually. And uh, he put him on a whole food plant-based diet, and the results were amazing. Yeah. And that's, that was published in British Medical Journal just here last December. So he's doing that. Unfortunately, this COVID thing is really screwing up hospitals at the moment, medical schools. So it's horrible what's happening there. Uh, so that's what his, his game is. He, he gives lectures around. Um, yeah. I think very good lectures. Um, and um, he's got some other. He's got a study on breast cancer patients as well. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, the oldest son, Nelson, as you know, uh, yep. he's got uh, he's got some really good stuff going. He's got he founded a n- network of uh, of communities called Pods, and uh, he did that film, Clapper Nation, and yeah, we we got some. And we of course have our own uh, online course that you have been involved in. Your dad's been involved in that. That we're kind of proud of. It's really gone well. Uh, it's the number one online course at the university, actually. Wow! And uh, so that that is to, uh, that's what now our daughter Leanne, who has really had a, quite an exciting program in the Dominican Republic, hmm. you know, involving the environment, and uh, you know, working with people down there, and she's now the strategy person for the for that uh, that group. Right. And uh, so, yeah, they're all three involved in it, not up to their eyeballs full time. And uh, you must you must be so proud of them. Yeah, well, I, I'm happy to. Yeah, I mean, we, we uh, yeah, we're, we're going in, in the general direction. Uh, we argue sometimes back and forth, I mean, just like anybody else. But but yeah, we, it's a it's a it's a total story. I, I think I think uh, as you, you know yourself, I mean, this. This thing is a, it's a big story in a sense that it involves not just, you know, making a person feel well and recovering from disease, but also um, environment, cost yeah. of health care. These are big ticket items. They really are. And it's all just comes down to deciding what to eat. <laughs> and we've got off track. We've got off track. We, we sure did get off track. Let me ask you this, Colin. What, what, what are you most excited about right now? Is there anything that you're working on that you're just like, you know, gets you up at 630 and you're jumping out of bed? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think this COVID-19 is kind of interesting. I just got a phone call just a little while ago, a few hours ago, from uh, a good friend in China. And of all things, it's kind of ironic that the information we have on that came from China. Mm. I still maintain some really good relationships. Uh, one of my really good friends has got a coalition of 13 universities in China. We're very excited about this. And so uh, I, I think uh, I want to carry that story, that story forward. Yeah. Um, not just for whatever our site is, it's, 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 it's actually people are suffering. Yeah. You know, they're suffering. And I, I think, and, and we're paying a big price economically and socially. It's, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's really ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I, I know we have to do social distancing and we like to, we have to do, I mean, I do that. We do that ourselves. That's, that's not the issue. But that's, we can't go around the rest of our life looking to the future, you know, of, of putting a face mask every, one, every two or three months. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of passionate about getting, this, getting that information out there. Yeah, yeah. But however, what, however it happens. What did you have for, uh, you have for breakfast today? Oh, a minimal this time. I usually have uh, oatmeal, but uh, this morning just had some fruit. Yep. Have you had lunch yet? Yeah, we did. Had a salad. I eat rabbit food just like you do. <laughs> so <laughs> nice, nice. No, no. We'll, then we'll have a we'll have a decent meal. Uh, you know, later today. Yep, yep. Full meal. Yep. Well, uh, Colin, I really appreciate the time today. I want you to know how much. Um, you have inspired me on my journey, you know, starting with uh, when I first met you in 1991, when my father hosted the first ever conference on the elimination of coronary artery, artery disease in Tucson, uh, Arizona. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can't thank you enough for the relationship that we've had over the years and you being so generous with your time and coming to plant stock, I think six or seven times. Um, but, you know, you really have paid. Go ahead. The only thing, you know, that, that sort of got interrupted in a way, I don't yeah. know your perspective, but uh, that came right at the time we were always planning our, our summer vacation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a little bit difficult, but that's another yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you have paved the way for so many people, and it is, I think it's because of your, your courage and, uh, and your resiliency and your, you know, your steadfast dedication to the truth that all of us are truly standing on the shoulders of you and my father and John McDougall and, and, and you pioneers. So I want to thank you for, um, for making, uh, making the world a better place because of what you stand for and not compromising and not following the status quo. You are, you are something special. Well, thank you very much. I can say yeah. the same thing about your dad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Colin, until I see you next time, Follow me here. Peace. Okay. Peace. Turn it around. Engine two. Plant strong. He's 86 years young and still going strong. I love this man. Thank you, Colin, for devoting your life's work to nutrition, education, and shooting straight. As Colin likes to say, the best way to defend yourself against this and all disease is to pivot to a whole food, plant-based diet. The evidence and the research is there 
won't you join us? For resources, visit plantstrongpodcast.com. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, Wade Clark, and Carrie Barrett. I want to thank my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Kryle Esselstyn for creating a legacy that will be carried on for generations and being willing to go against the current and trudge upstream to the causation. We are all better for it.